Welcome to Hub and Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub and Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hello, this is Kevin Dobbs, Senior Markets Editor with Natural Gas Intelligence. Welcome to the Hub and Flow Podcast. NGI is an independent news and price reporting agency focused on natural gas and LNG in the Americas, primarily the United States, Canada, and Mexico. I'm joined today by Colorado-based Liberty Energy CEO, Chris Wright. A veteran of the oil and natural gas industry, Wright is an MIT-trained mechanical engineer. Prior to Liberty, he founded Pinnacle Technologies and led the company from the early 1990s to 2006. Pinnacle is at the forefront of the hydraulic fracture mapping industry. Its innovations helped launch commercial shale gas production in the late 1990s. Wright is bullish on natural gas demand for years to come and says fossil fuels will be needed for many decades, likely much longer. Natural gas prices that spiked over the summer and remain elevated by shoulder season standards support his thesis. NGI's most recent ranking of top North American natural gas marketers also backed the bullish case. Top marketers reported stronger overall sales volumes for the second quarter as production gathered momentum in response to strong consumption and prices. With production reaching a record level in September and again early this month, marketers also expect the second half of 2022 to prove fertile ground. Against that backdrop, Wright shares with us why he thinks robust natural gas demand will endure and why the energy transition, in his view, is not really a transition at all, but rather a gradual shift to more varied sources of energy that could take centuries. With that, let's dive in. I appreciate you uh, being with us today as we uh, look ahead for demand for natural gas and oil over the coming decade. I think you're a great person to talk to. You have a unique perspective uh, on the need for fossil fuels heading into the next several years and perhaps beyond. You've talked a lot about, about the energy transition or the lack thereof. I guess I'm just curious how you think about the energy transition or or not and, and what you view as the uh, the future for natural gas and oil. Yes. Uh, yeah, Kevin, I've, I'm, I'm never shy, so I've been outspoken on that issue. Mm-hmm. And as background, I, I started my career in, in what everyone would call today the energy transition space. You know, I went to college to work on fusion energy. I worked on solar energy for a year or so, and I worked in geothermal both 30 years ago and again today. So look, I have no oil and gas in my background and my family. It's not protection of some legacy I've got because I've got no legacy there. But if you just look at the data of where the world gets its sources of primary energy, and if you remove traditional biofuels, that's a third of humanity still dominantly getting their cooking fuels from traditional biofuels. So we're hoping to move beyond that because it's very deadly of order 3 million deaths a year. If you take those out of the stack, Then 30 years ago, humanity got 87% of its energy from hydrocarbons, and today it's about 83.5%. So a 3.5% market share change in 30 years is an energy transition, then, uh, well, it's not. I mean, that's that's a 700-plus year pace. And of course, we started with the low-hanging fruit, which is the electricity sector in wealthy countries. And even that small movement, shrinkage of market share, has led everywhere it's been deployed at scale, 
has led to higher prices and less reliable electricity grids. So though I'm all in to see better energy or different energy sources come into the mix, nuclear, I think, still does have great running room if we can get the politics right. But uh, yeah, to me, energy transition is one of the five terms I point out that's just used used all the time, and it's just simply incorrect. And giving that false impression that we're in the midst of a rapidly accelerating, I hear all the time, energy transition, it just gets the average person or the middle-of-the-road politician in the wrong mindset, and they support things that are just positively destructive for humanity. So what do you think is the right mindset then? The right mindset is that energy, reliable, affordable, secure energy is just essential for everything humans do. Everything. The internet, the dialogue you and I are having, the clothes we're wearing, the medicine, the healthcare, our homes, our materials, our ability to call long distance and talk to our grandma or visit our family, all of those things were just unfathomable before the arrival of hydrocarbons. And they're all enabled today by hydrocarbons. So wanting to invest in different energy technologies, I'm all for that. Looking at how we can reduce carbon dioxide emissions or all greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere Those are reasonable ideas. Climate change is a real thing. But of course, it should be kept in context. It's nowhere close to the most urgent or greatest threat facing humanity today. But it's a real and global issue. So that sort of that background context is okay to keep in mind. But when people think, hey, we're going to get rid of hydrocarbons in the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, they start opposing pipelines or opposing infrastructure. Cities are now voting to not allow natural gas heating or cooking in homes. They're just going to make people's lives more expensive, less reliable, and they're going to hurt human lives, which, which is why we called our, our corporate ESG report, another pet peeve of mine, but we called our corporate ESG report bettering human lives. That's what energy does. You want to change the energy system, it better be in a way that's better at bettering human lives. Mm-hmm. So how, do, you, do you see a, a future where there, we're no longer using natural gas or oil? I mean, if we're 30 years from now, do you see us not using it at, at No that chance point? of that. Z- zero chance okay. of not using hydrocarbons 30 years from now. In fact, I would say if you just look at the technologies and where money is flowing today and the direction we're heading, it's likely – that hydrocarbons, as they said, they've shrunk from 87% to 83.5%. They might be less than 80% 30 years from now, could be high 70s, mid 70s, if we really get better sources of energy, or we really go a bad direction and we impoverish, we sort of stop the economic progress of humanity, as, as Europe has done. Look at, look at the United Kingdom. They just exported all of their industry by trying to restrict hydrocarbon consumption in the country. And they've made this birthplace of property rights, this birthplace of the modern world. It's now on a per capita basis, poorer than every state in the United States. Mississippi, of our poorest state, it's it's better off, higher per capita income than the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And you trace that directly to the to the stance on energy or fossil fuels specifically. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Because look, what, 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 what I worry about with per capita income is not are the wealthy people getting wealthier. In a, in a free system, they will. And, and those investments and those dynamism that they might engage in create jobs and, and, and help drive societal progress. So not to, not to underplay that, but what we should look at in by far our most important social policy is how are the people that weren't born in a great place, weren't born in a strong family structure, didn't have, didn't get to go to nice schools. It's people that, that have the least luck in their starts in life. Our economic focus should be how do we maximize their opportunities to get ahead and put their kids in a better environment than they than they were able to grow up in, whether they're immigrants or just just were born in less fortunate circumstances in our country or in the United Kingdom or, or wherever they are. Mm-hmm. But energy is just so enabling for anything you want to do. And for lower income people, energy is a greater percent of their total expenditure than it is for you and I. There's some things you have to do in life. You have to eat. You will die if you don't eat. And the biggest input cost for producing food is energy. You've got to have shelter. You've got to have a roof over your head. And you've got to keep that warm in the, in the wintertime and cool in the summertime. Those are all energy-intensive activities. You've got to be able to get to a place of work. That's an energy-intensive activity. And then energy-intensive jobs tend to be the high-paying but lower-skill requirement jobs. Manufacturing, transportation, farming. These are jobs that created, the lifted people into the middle class as we got economic development over the last century. But when you have an expensive, unreliable energy policy, let's just call it what it is, that's, that's what they pursued in Europe for 20 years, That's what the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States is trying to supercharge here. We're trying to force uneconomic, lower energy density, intermittent sources of energy onto our electricity grid. The only place that leads is more expensive, less reliable energy. And when you do that, you impoverish everyone, but particularly lower income people, and you displace these energy intensive well-paying blue-collar jobs out of whatever jurisdiction is doing that. In California, like this incredibly state that's got every natural gift and historical gift you can imagine, it has the highest adjusted poverty rate in the nation. So yes, I think the struggles in Europe, the struggles in California at core is making energy more expensive and less reliable. So Looking at the U.S. in isolation, crude output reached a, a record just prior to the pandemic, and obviously there was a substantial pause given the pandemic, but has since climbed back pretty close, you know, within striking distance this year. Natural gas production, uh, according to Bloomberg's estimates, hit a peak early October, early this month, you know, above anything we saw prior to the pandemic even. So that would speak to the demand. It would speak to the response of producers, what does it say about the policy situation right now? It says for the from the policy situation that most of U.S. oil and gas production is on private lands. That's why we had the shale revolution in the United States and why it hasn't gone anywhere else yet. 
with the exception of Canada, who, who sort of worked around their government ownership of mineral rights. But in the U.S., all, almost the majority of our production is on private lands and then and another slice on state lands. But federal lands, it's becoming very it's becoming incrementally harder to produce on. So in spite of that, that production activities on private lands have been able to grow U.S. oil and natural gas production. Of course, they're growing because that price signal is sending to both of those both of those marketplaces, we, the world needs more oil, the world needs more natural gas, and private economic actors respond to those economic signals. But there's barriers in the way to move that. The inability the last five years to build pipelines, the incredible slow playing of natural gas export terminals have limited the growth, particularly in U.S. natural gas production. The, wor- the world is entering into the early stages of a food crisis, not because Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine because we went into the start of an energy crisis last summer when world natural gas prices sold on shipborne LNG prices skyrocketed because the demand for natural gas exceeded all the liquefaction capacity that exists today. This and this is a huge problem. This has d- dramatically risen the price of fertilizer. In fact, it shrunk fertilizer production around the world. United Kingdom, two big fertilizer plants, they shut them both down because natural gas prices skyrocketed. One of them they got back on with government subsidies because they need a byproduct of fertilizer production, CO2, to carbonate beer. And uh, that's important to the Brits. But this energy crisis is because not lack of resources, not lack of natural gas, not lack of oil, but it's lack of common sense that's restricted the building of infrastructure to export natural gas out of the United States, for example, and to import natural gas into Europe. They put all their chips on Russia's a reliable, friendly supplier. That wasn't a good bet. And as Russia's cut off or has shrunk gas exports to Europe, they're, the only way to, to fix that in the next few years is to bring natural gas into Europe, but they've got to build these LNG import terminals. Germany's got a mobile one coming online pretty quick. So things are happening, but there's just, you know, natural gas is $6.50, a million BTU in the United States, and it's 50 to $60 in Europe. That discrepancy means huge stress on Europe's industrial sector, huge percent of the population aren't going to afford to heat their homes this winter. Europe will go into likely a pretty significant recession that'll have ripple effects around the world. And most alarming to me, as we're seeing all this happen, it's in the midst of this crisis that uh, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Boy, it sure sounds neat. Um, Didn't have anything very explicitly attacking oil and gas. So I think people breathe the sigh of relief. Ah, this is probably not that damaging. But in fact, I, I think it will be quite damaging because it's a third of a trillion dollars of subsidies, economic incentives that ultimately will draw trillions of dollars of investment, mostly in wind and solar that'll go onto our grids, that'll lead to the same electricity struggles, high prices low reliability, politicization of energy, not economic market forces driving what happens in energy. 
And we and again, we, we've seen where 20 years of that has driven Europe. We, we don't want to repeat that. So you've got that investment in wind and solar. You're, so it sounds like you're, you're of the mind that that draws investment away from natural gas and building out the infrastructure you were, you were just talking about. It does draw investment away from natural gas, but that, that's in, in the biggest problem. Look, electricity sector is just one use of natural gas. Natural gas is roughly 40% of today's electricity sector. It's also our dominant fuel for home heating. It's the dominant raw material and energy source to produce fertilizer. It's an incredibly important industrial fuel. So natural gas, of course, it's a huge source of, of petrochemicals. You can't build solar panels or wind turbines without enormous amounts of oil and gas. Another reason we know they're not going to go away. But yes, when, when, when you put wind and solar onto grids, and you do it in the way that, that it's mostly been done, which is buy electricity every minute at the marginal cost, something that all its capital is in uh, upfront except for maintenance costs, you know, to build a wind turbine. It means when the wind blows, that electricity is going to go onto the grid at a very low marginal cost. It means natural gas power plants are going to shut down when the wind's blowing hard. As soon as the wind dies down, they're going to have to ramp up quickly. You, you have to have two electricity grids, the intermittent unreliable grid, but that, that, that doesn't work, right? When the, the, the incubator's on for your ailing parent or your premature child that was born, it has to be on all the time reliably. So we have to have a second electricity grid that's made up of dispatchable sources, natural gas being the leader in this area. But if you have a plant that used to run sort of 70 or 80% of the time, and now it runs 30 to 40% of the time, and it's turning up, turning down, turning up, turning down, that the, the return on those assets has gotten much lower. The maintenance and efficiency of that plant has gotten lower. So yes, now, now you're the one that makes the grid stable, but your economics have gotten much worse, which is, which is why commercially, lots of coal plants have been retired and natural gas plants have been retired. Because in the current, just sort of, just sort of poorly designed electricity market, hey, their profitability is less. But what happens is, as you saw in Europe, as we saw, as we we see, we see in California, and as we've seen in Texas, as you walk down this road, your grid just becomes less and less robust and more and more expensive. But every little incremental step, people don't get what's driving the pain. Electricity markets are a little bit complicated. That's part of the struggle here. Mm -hmm. so, so you mentioned earlier nuclear and how does nuclear fit into a potential solution for this and and how do you see momentum shifting back in the way you'd like to see it well look high and unreliable elect energy prices electricity is only 20 percent of the global energy sector that when, when when something that's critical for life becomes expensive and unreliable now you get people's attention you're probably getting a lot more people asking you these days, what's going on in energy? Where, you know, for the last five or seven years, as energy was cheap and relatively reliable in the United States, you didn't get nearly as many questions. So nuclear, what's great about nuclear is high energy density. A small surface footprint can produce a huge amount of energy. The only, the only energy source with a higher energy density than natural gas. Also, relatively modest fuel requirements, plants can last a long time, and it can produce electricity 
whether the wind is blowing or the sun is out or there's a big storm in place. So it's a reliable source of dispatchable electricity and relatively modest greenhouse gas emissions. No, No source has no greenhouse gas emissions because you can't build a nuclear power plant without a huge amount of energy and raw materials from hydrocarbons. Same thing for wind and solar, but they are meaningfully lower greenhouse gas emissions per amount of produced energy. So nuclear, I think, should have a growing role on the U.S. and the global electricity grid. I hope it does. I suspect the next 10 or 20 years will be much better for nuclear than the last 10 or 20 years. The other thing key about nuclear is you can produce high temperature process heat to make steel, to make cement, to make plastics, to make the materials, the building blocks of our world. It takes several thousand degrees high temperature process heat. You can't get that from wind and solar. You could never build a wind turbine from only wind turbines. But you you need both reliable electricity and high temperature process heat. Nuclear can supply high temperature process heat. So it has the potential to play a larger role in the energy sector in the long run. As I said already, electricity is only 20% of global energy. Its percentage is not growing very fast. Everyone talks about electrify everything. That isn't happening because because you can't use straight electricity to produce high quality process heat at an economic cost. So you, we, if we're going to shrink hydrocarbons' role over the next many decades, maybe centuries, you've got to have something that can bring process heat as well as electricity production. Nuclear can do that. We still don't have any way to have small energy dense. We don't have other ideas for how to fly a commercial aircraft or for the raw materials, the petrochemicals that come from hydrocarbon molecules themselves. So I think even a century or two from now, you'll see quite a bit of hydrocarbons, but whether they're 60 or 70% of global energy 100 years from now, or 30% of global energy 100 years from now, depends a lot on nuclear or other sources of energy that actually can displace hydrocarbons, which wind and solar really can't. They're just an expensive, unreliable, intermittent source of electricity in, in that one narrow sector of electricity. And even there, they're, they're, the rollout of them has been, has been quite checkered and quite negative. So kind of a big picture then. You, you talk about centuries, potentially centuries. The climate change discussions tends to uh, center around maybe we only have decades to, to take drastic action. How do, you, how do you counter that or how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's, that's activist groups, that's politicians. It's people that are not spending the time to really look into climate change. And in that report we wrote just earlier this summer called Bettering Human Lives, you Google Liberty Energy Bettering Human Lives, you can download this 100-page report full of graphs and photos and data. It's not, it's not a super dense read, but I also, in that report, cover climate change and cover climate economics, which is the people working within the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, writing peer-reviewed economic research of what are the social impacts and therefore the economic impacts of climate change as it unfolds over, say, the rest of this century. So let's just talk in an 80-year time frame. 
There's a wide range because, of course, we don't know the future. So all of this should be taken with a wide, a wide error bands. But the estimated downsides of us not doing anything about climate change is that at the end of this century, the average per capita income might be reduced somewhere between 0.2% and 3-4-5% what it would be otherwise without any negative impacts from climate change. All the economic modeling, and if you extrapolate what's happened the last 50 years, we're going to be in round numbers 300% or more wealthier than we are today at the end of this century. So is it really a crisis that instead of being 300% wealthier, we might only be 299 or or maybe only 280% wealthier at the end of the century than we are today? Nothing about that smells urgent crisis. So this talking about a crisis and we only have one, two or three decades, there's just nothing, nothing. And look, I've been working and studying climate change for 20 years. There's nothing that really supports that. The main thing you hear is, look at these storms and these hurricanes and extreme weather. We're terrifying children and citizens that climate change is an urgent, it's a, it's a current crisis. But again, if you dig into the data, all in that report, Bettering Human Lives, we've seen no meaningful, no increase in global hurricane activity, in, in uh, tornado activity, in drought activity in flood activity. Floods are harder because, of course, we're changing riverways. We're changing ways to manage floods. But if you normalize that to percent of economy impact on an annual basis, it's been declining for decades. By far, the most important impact of extreme weather is the threat to human lives. The number of people dying from extreme weather on an annual basis today is 95% lower than it was a century ago. And that's in a population that's grown four times greater than the global population a century ago. So the risk of death from extreme weather has never been lower and continues to go low. And where are those remaining tragic 10 or 15,000 deaths a year from extreme weather concentrated in low income, less energized by modern energy, meaning dominantly less energized by hydrocarbons? And we used to, we used to lose four to 500,000 people every year from extreme weather. Not that extreme weather was worse 100 years ago. It's actually quite similar. It's just 100 years ago, we didn't have wealthy, stronger house building, great sources of energy that allowed people to move and survive these horrifying storms. The storms are frightening and scary, but they're, they're not on an upward trend. But that just sells so well politically. It sells so well in schools to scare kids and get everyone amped up about climate change. But it's, it's unfortunately like a kernel of truth, but mostly wrapped in seven layers of deception for political purposes. I'm all about whether it's what's happening with the energy transition or climate change. Let's be honest. Let's understand the data. Let's understand the facts. Then we can have different opinions. We can have different trade-offs we want to make or different priorities. It doesn't lead to precise answers, but it cuts out of the realm of reasonable so much of what we hear. Let's be honest about what's really going on with climate change and the global energy system. Okay, great. So let's let's close with uh, a more of a short-term outlook here. I'm curious your thoughts on natural gas demand, both domestically and globally, over the next you know 15 months through 2023. 
You bet. The outlook for natural gas demand. Before saying anything about the outlook, the recent history in the demand for natural gas has been simply tremendous. On on an absolute energy basis, it's the fastest growing energy source in the world by a fair margin. It's awesome as as a fuel source. I think it is likely in the next several decades to overtake coal as the largest source of global electricity. It's already done that in the United States. It's already done that in Europe. It's done that in the wealthy countries. But the outlook and demand for natural gas is strong. We see that in the price signals today. But whether the rest of the the, the consumption growth of natural gas in the next, just say, five or 10 years, I think is limited almost entirely by the ability to supply it. So we need, uh, and we do have under construction now, we need to multiple LNG uh, liquefaction terminals to export out of the United States. We need to grow that. Qatar in the Middle East is growing their liquefaction capacity and Australia a little bit as well. We need to get more seaborne natural gas available for the planet. The demand is there. We need the delivery mechanism. We have the underground resources. We're not limited by producing natural gas out of the ground. We've got a lot of that. Pipeline infrastructure being built to Mexico and part of the Mexican electricity grid moving more towards natural gas generation, I think that will happen as well. Mexico is a fantastic manufacturing industrial country. The more natural gas we can get delivered via pipeline, meaning lower cost, higher reliability, I think you see more growth in manufacturing and industrial activity in Mexico. So look, North America is a great place to be. If you're in the U.S., Canada, or Mexico, you're going to have advantaged energy costs versus the rest of the world, at least for the next decade or so. But if we can build out the infrastructure and be be able to deliver, that'll be somewhat pipelines overseas and LNG infrastructure, we're going to see natural gas continue to grow not just in absolute consumption of natural gas, but also in its percent of total global primary energy. I'm I'm very bullish on the next five or 10 years for demand for natural gas. Well, great, Chris. Really appreciate the time. It's been a great conversation. Thanks again for joining us. You bet, Kevin. My pleasure. Enjoy talking with you. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or midweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.